Well, we want to take our Bibles this morning. I tell you, what a great testimony, right? Wonderful testimony from Matt. And, um, you know, God's in the business of saving people and uh, evidently saving businesses as well, you know, in the welfare of people. And so we're going to be looking at a couple of passages this morning in the Scripture. One is found at the very end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation. And then the other, um, maybe our primary Scripture, I guess, is in Ephesians chapter 1. I began this series of messages several weeks ago um, on for something more, and looking at Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to be finishing there as well on a different set of verses here in just a few moments. As we open up our Bible, we realize, and what we've established, I think, uh, through the last six weeks, is that people are looking for something more. Now, some people are looking at, uh, you know, for something more in their business, some in their career, some in their family. You know, their life is wrapped around that, and they're really hoping that will fulfill their life. But others have actually come to church, and they grew up at church, or maybe they came as a young person to church, and they felt like, well, maybe I'll find it there, and they really didn't find the things that they were really looking for even at the church. They're looking for something more. Now, we are committed as a church to help you find that. But as we look at this, we understand that Jesus said something very insightful to his disciples the, um, during the time, during the Passion Week, before he would die on the cross. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, he will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Now, I'm not talking about just greater works and leading somebody else to Jesus Christ. I'm talking about a miraculous life inside of you, and therefore, it gives you the power to have an influence and an impact on the world around you, just like what we heard in our testimony just a few moments ago. And so, so far in this series, we opened up in Ephesians chapter 1, we said really the key to it all is our identity in Christ. The very moment that we receive Christ, the Holy Spirit, comes into, inside our inter, inner core of life, the heart of life. And because of that, we get our identity in the Lord. That's Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, and other places in the Bible as well. Now, simply put, that means now that I'm a believer, I, I don't get my identity first and foremost as a father or as a husband or as a pastor. Uh, you don't get your identity as a Democrat or Republican. You get your identity and your life is wrapped up around not being a Baptist, not being a Catholic, not being a Methodist, it gets wrapped up around Jesus Christ. And because he is the core and the center of your life, things happen in your life. The inner working of God, we said, is organic in itself. The, the, Jesus is the vine, we are the branches, and we bear fruit on the vine because the Holy Spirit of God is like the sap that comes up through the vine onto the branches and bears the fruit in our life. And we said, what is that fruit? Well, on the outside, it is another believer. It's leading somebody else to Jesus Christ. It's also maybe a great answer to prayer, a miraculous answer to prayer. That could be God doing something in your life that is miraculous, like we've heard this morning. Or it could be on the inside, because that's where it comes first, where the Bible says it's the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, kindness, self-control. Those are the kinds of things that you and I want in our life. And we said that there are three basic stages, according to 1 John, about where we are as believers. We're infants, first of all. We start off as babies in the Lord, cute, wonderful, 
You know, we have all kinds of enthusiasm, but we have no clue of what really is going on. And so we grow up, we have adolescence, and we have different stages there. Nobody wants to remain a baby all their life, an infant all their life. And we don't want to unleash just simply babies out into the world either. We want to have them to be mature Christians and that and giving glory to God. And so you go through adolescence and you go through the trials of life and the different things that happen to you in life. And you learn more and more about God and you get into adulthood. That fruit of the Spirit in your life produces fruit on the vine, which enables uh, you and I to have power on the outside and doing great things and marvelous things for God. Now, as we look at this passage this morning, I want you to read something. I want us to read something in the book of Revelation. Now, I preached on this. In fact, I taught through the entire book on a Sunday evening about a year and a half ago through nine weeks. And uh, I think that's available maybe in 45 West our uh, bookstore coffee shop. But here's what it said in, in chapter 21, verse 1. As John the Apostle is getting this vision from the Lord, he's looked at all the things that are going to come about in the last days, and finally he talks about heaven. And he says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, Jerusalem coming down, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away, and he who has, was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And are, uh, trustworthy and true. Now I want you to look. That's verse 5. I want to skip over and look at verse 6. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. But listen to this verse. The one who conquers will, will have this. This heritage, and I will be his God, he will be my son. Now I read that verse in that set of verses to say all this promise of the afterlife, but here's the thing. That's our heritage. Ephesians 1, in just a moment we'll call it, our riches of his inheritance. I want you to notice something that, that the Apostle John brings out that is pretty obvious to us. I know I'm not telling you anything new, but I do know that you not only need to receive what I'm saying this morning, but to know it, to know it. And that is this, all of our inheritance, all the miraculous life, all the something more will not really occur just in this life. In fact, most of our inheritance will be in the life to come. It'll be in the afterlife. And John begins to describe that. Now, many of you may be sitting here today saying, well, I don't believe in heaven. And here's the problem. You know, a lot of people doubt heaven, but everybody believes in it. Eric Clapton wrote the song, Tears in Heaven, after his son, four-year-old son, fell out of a 54-story window. He wrote that song. C.S. Lewis has said, Heaven is that remote music we are, all are born with, remembering. We're all born remembering. 
But what's he saying there? He says innate, somehow within us, there's this whole concept that this life is not all there is. That there's something missing in this life, that, that you search for something more. And so while you want to get everything God wants you to have right here and have the satisfaction of life and the fulfillment of life, we know that there are trials in life. We know there's suffering in life. We, we sense there, certainly we see there's a lot of injustice as, as well in the world. We see people, we hear stories of missionaries going through torture. We've, we have uh, stories of missionaries that were, uh, were not rescued in the last moment. What about those times? There is an afterlife. Now, you've heard the phrase before, well, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. Is that really true? Well, let's look at it. We're going to look at the inheritance. What is it? What does it mean? And that's very important. And then even more important, how do you get it? So what is this inheritance? Well, it's really twofold and it's really in two places. Number one, it's right here. Part of the inheritance, the beginning of it is right here on earth. In Ephesians chapter one, Paul is writing a letter to the church at Ephesus. Now, here's something that you need to kind of think about, that when the writers of the Bible were writing uh, teachings and doctrinal statements, they were not just saying, oh, by the way, here's some doctrine I want you to have. They were writing in the context of what was going on in their life right then. And the church at Ephesus was experiencing persecution, and they needed hope. And Paul was writing to them from a prison himself, from preaching the gospel, and he was giving them this kind of hope. He says in verse 15, for this reason, what reason? Well, you have the Holy Spirit. You're, you're securing Christ. The Bible says that we are get our identity in Christ, for, <clears throat> excuse me, in Christ, for this reason. Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That, and here's his prayer, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of which he is called and what are the riches of his glory, of his inheritance to the saint, in the saints. He says the riches of his glorious inheritance. There is right now on this earth an inheritance for every single believer. There's promises for us. Notice what it says. He says, I'm gonna, God's going to give you wisdom. He's going to give you revelation. He, he, only God can reveal himself to you. And he's going to reveal himself to you. Then he says, your eyes are enlightened to the truth. That's why one of the evidences of the fact that you are a believer in Christ is that God leads you to truth and not to falsehood. Then he says three things he's going to enlighten you about. Look in verse uh, 18. The hope of which you were called. That's your salvation. You were called by the Holy Spirit, and as God calls you, he reaches down. God, the superior has to reach down to the inferior. God has reached down to us, called us to repentance, and we received him into our heart. The hope that he's talking about is, is the future hope. He's, he's saying a future faith. Hope in the Bible is not wishful thinking. Hope in the Bible means I, I know it's going to come true, and I'm looking forward to receiving it. And so that's what Paul uh, the writer here, Paul, is talking about. Then he says, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, I want you to notice, he says, I want you to know it. I don't want you to receive it. I want you to know it. Why does he say, I want you to receive it in the original language? Why did he say that? Because they'd already received it. This was written to, <clears throat> excuse me, a church at Ephesus, 
And it was already a bunch of believers that were meeting together. He said, I want you to know it. I want you to be aware of it. Let me give you this little story. For example, somebody here uh, goes to an orphanage and they want to adopt, um, we'll say a four-year-old girl. And they, they meet with her for maybe two or three hours. They, they just talk to her. They're laughing. They're cutting up. They're just having a great time. And maybe the, the mom there, or the would-be mom, looks at her and says, she says, you know, I've got good news for you. We're going to adopt you. Now, what do you think that four-year-old girl's response would be? She would say, well, can I look at your 401k? You know, um, Do you have enough money to send me to college? How do you feel about college? What kind of, where, where do you live exactly? What city do you live in? Do you have a lot of influence with the politicians around you? No, she's not thinking about that kind of stuff at all. All she knows is she has a home. She's been looking for a home all these years. Now she has it. She throws her arms around her new mom and her new dad, and she goes home, never realizing maybe that this couple really does have a lot of money. They have a lot of influence. She becomes an adolescent, a teenager, and they said, oh, by the way, uh, you, you are really not aware <coughs> excuse me, of everything that's going on here, but we just want you to know, not receive, but know what your adoption means. You are not only wealthy, you can go, but you can go to any school, any college in the country. We're going to buy you a brand new car when you turn 16. And over and over, oh, we have political connections. So we're going to get you a job in Washington, D.C., in one of our senator's offices, and you're going to be able to intern there. And all of a sudden, she's overwhelmed. Wow, I didn't know I had this. Well, when you're an infant in Christ, you don't always know what you have. And so as you grow in Christ, you begin to realize what you have in Christ. And that's what he wants you to realize, the inheritance that you have. Notice he says also the greatness of his power. This, this Greek word, come, this power comes dunamis. It's a dynamite. And, and it's a dynamo and it's a dynamite. It, it's just explosive. And it's an explosive by itself. It doesn't need anything else. It explodes on its own. And he says, this is what it's going to be. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Notice what this power did. It raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And he seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places. That's where he's seated today. Far above the rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. He, he conquered Satan here. That's what it's talking about. His power con conquered Satan. Verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as a head over all things to the church. He, had, he rules over everything, including his church. This is the kind of power that God has given you. Again, what have we said? The organic power. It's not a pile of rocks, pile of bricks, where you just simply add to the pile. You can grow a pile of bricks that way, but you can't grow the brick from the inside out. That's why Jesus used a gardening illustration. He is the vine, we are the branches, and it's an organic growth. It grows from the inside. And what is the objective? To restore us to a relationship with God. See, God's design, original design, design for our life, if we can just look at it from a, a graph, in fact, we have this up here. God's design, remember we, we did this a few weeks ago, sin marred that design. It marred our relationship with God. And the Bible says in Romans 3.23, all of sin and come short of the glory of God. The very moment Adam sinned against God, it marred us and therefore we were broken. 
we were broken. But Jesus died for us on the cross, and we must receive him as an act of faith to invite him into our heart. And God then, from the cross, pulls us back in and brings us back to the original design. At least that is the goal for our life, to do great, that kind of great work within us. But we know, we, in fact, we don't know of anybody that's ever been perfect, even after they've been saved. We don't know that. And so there's a journey, but the journey ends up in heaven. God wants to bless us now with all the fruit of the Spirit in our life, but we know that we don't have that all the time. We know that we have conflict going on within our heart, and so there's also an inheritance for tomorrow. We read about that in Revelation chapter 21. We've read already where there's going to be no more tears, no more death, no, no more a lot of things, no more separation from God, no more sea simply means no more separation from God, no more pain. That means there's, there, as they were under heavy persecution, there are no more tears. There's nothing that grieves us in heaven. There's no more night. There's nothing that frightens us. There's no more sin, nothing that hurts and defiles and separates us. And there's no more death. There's nothing that ends. It's, it's forever. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, but it's written, what no, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. There's a heritage here. There's rewards here. And it's an exciting time to be with Jesus forever. So what does that mean? We're going to go to heaven. Okay. You know, playing a harp all the time and, and be bored to death? No. I can't imagine that. When I, when I have those moments where I'm really closest to God, when I have those moments, maybe when I'm in prayer, maybe driving in the car, and I, I feel so close to the Lord, it excites my heart. When I was going over the scripture last night, and um, you said, well, you're kind of raspy. There's a reason for that. <clears throat> I didn't get enough sleep last night. I got, I got to studying this passage last night, and I got so excited I couldn't go to sleep. And that kind of excitement multiplied many, 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 many times over when we get to heaven, but... What does it really mean to us today? How should that change our life? I want you to notice a second in your outline, what does it mean? John Lennon, one of the Beatles, uh, wrote a song after the Beatles split up called Imagine. Many of you have heard that song before, and uh, it, it sort of hangs with us over the years. It's known as one of the great songs that have been written. But Imagine really is the um, theme song to atheism. That's what it is. Imagine there's no God. He says, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. And the theme to the song, is, the message to the song is, if we don't think about God and we don't think about the afterlife and just live for today, then we're going to have more joy. In fact, we're going to treat our fellow man so much better if we feel like there's no afterlife. Well, Rome tried that. And Rome, and it failed. Rome was a beast at heart. No one treated its citizens and no one treated its non-citizens worse in history than Rome. But they didn't live for the afterlife. There's no accountability there. And then, what about Karl Marx? Started communism. And it was more on a, a, a sign of the, e uh, the, the economic side of things. And he said, religion is the opiate of the people. It's the drug of the people. Why did he say that? Well, the 
many reasons, but the main reason was, he said, they believe in an afterlife, they believe in heaven, and they think because of that, everything's going to even, even out in heaven anyway. And so they use that as an excuse to, to suppress the poor. And they probably did. But the point is, he says, let's just, let, let's just stamp out God. So what happened? The world, at one point, what, one-third of the world was enslaved under communism? Enslaved. You say, oh, no, it was a happy time. No, my dear friend, don't believe that stuff. Communism is a horrible time. It's an enslavement time. It's a, it's a faith without God. And so, where does that leave us? Are we so heavenly minded we're no earthly good? How in the world could believing in heaven help my life today? Well, it gives us a reason to live life to the fullest. Look, look what it says in Romans, excuse me, Revelation 21, 2. This is great here. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. One day, the whole atmosphere of God, not only a place, but an atmosphere will come down to the earth. You see, when we think about our relationship with God, it's more than just a place to be. It's an atmosphere that's surrounding our life, and it's declaring the glory of God. Notice some, some of the things here in the passage. Verses 9, I won't take time to read verses 9 through 27, but it, it describes what heaven's going to be like. But John, being caught up in this vision, had no idea how to describe it. He was seeing things that he'd never seen before. And so he uses the word, for example, in verse 11. Uh, it, it was like a, a rare jewel. It was like a jasper, clear as a crystal. Well, you know, that doesn't make sense. But then in verse 18, the wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. Gold is not clear. And he says, look, I, I want you to imagine what heaven's going to be like. He's talking to a persecuted church. The emperor then was, was doing horrible things to Christians, and more horrible things were coming. And he was saying, look, this life is not all there is. I know it doesn't seem like justice on the earth, but stay faithful to God. God's going to bless you on the inside now, miraculous things on the outside, but then one day... You're going to be with him forever and forever. And heaven's going to come down. And notice it says in, in uh, chapter 22, let me, let me read these verses. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God. And the lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. You recognize that in the book of Genesis? The tree of life was in the book of Genesis. You do that tree, you live, live forever. He said, the tree of life is there with the 12 kinds of fruit. Recognize the fruit. All throughout the Bible, we see this as a, a symbol of what is going on in our life. What's hanging on the vine or, or hanging on the branches from the vine? It's the fruit. What is it? The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, kindness, self-control. What do we see in heaven? We see fruit. Then the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. What is God doing here? He's healing us. He's restoring us. He's bringing us back to God's design. Eventually, that's what's going to happen in heaven. We're growing right now. We're growing to mature, maturity, and we'll grow beyond that, but it will not be complete until we get to heaven and we face to face with Jesus Christ, and we will become like he is. Notice, there's a change here. How does that change our way of living? 
when we know something is out there besides this world, wouldn't that change, if you really believe that, wouldn't that change the way you live? Roddy Stark, according to Tim Keller, writes, writes that, uh, he writes on the plagues during the Roman Empire. And he studied this uh, one particular guy, Dr. Uh, Gaglum, and I have no idea what his first name is. I don't know if anybody does. But he wrote during the Roman times, and he wrote about these Christians. And he said, you know, one thing about the plague, it, it killed, I think, 5,000 people a day. 25% of the Roman Empire would eventually die uh, from the plague. And so they knew that you caught the plague by human contact. And what they would do, uh, the Roman citizens, they would leave their loved ones even lying in the street to head to the hills. If they, they got the plague, they just didn't touch them. They just left them there to die. And everybody left. Everybody went to the, to the hills, to the wilderness, and being away from people, being away from the city where they could catch this plague. And this doctor who wrote about it took off as well. He left. But he talked about the Christians that stayed in Rome and not only took care of their own, but also took, the, uh, took care of the people that were abandoned. Dr. Rodney Stark said, both of these responses were reasonable. Now, I don't know if the guy's a believer or not. Uh, probably not, just be, from the things he's writing. But here's what his assessment was. Both were reasonable responses because as a Roman citizen, as a non-believer in Christ, you believe this life is all there is. And so if this life is all there is, you protect you and your own, particularly you, because once you die, you're dead forever. You don't know anything. And so you fight for your life. You, you head to the hills. Never mind your wife that's left behind. Never mind your child that's left behind. You've got to fight because you can't save them anyway. And so you might as well have flight. Reasonable response. But then he says it's also reasonable and rational for the Christian response because the Christians believe that they had another life. They had an afterlife. And so they believe there was something better on the other side than what they were living. And so why not give yourself to others? Why not stay behind and minister to these people? And maybe there's, they didn't know. Maybe there was some hope. Somehow there was some hope that they could save some. So they not only took care of their family, but also the people, in, again, of the people in the street. But he said these are both reasonable responses because of the belief system that they had. Why give your life, time, and money to something that doesn't exist? You know, you, you have people that give 10% of their income and some even more. My goodness, we, we had a, believe it or not, we had a guy give over, a, a man give over a million dollars for this building. One guy. Not, doesn't live in, uh, you know, in, a, in a Orlando anymore. Why would he do that? Why would anybody do that? Why would somebody come here and teach people a, a lesson, and maybe in some churches they don't even show up? They don't even show up for the lesson. Only a few, a handful of people, after he studied or she studied, hours and hours all week. Why would somebody do that when you could go to the beach? Because they believe there's something else that they're living for. There's something else. And wouldn't they live 60 years or 80 years, 100 years, 120 years? If you live that long, 120 years, old, it, it is a small drop in the bucket 
to what eternity is going to be. And eternity is on the line for a lot of people. Why would you give yourself to something if you didn't believe it, but why would you not give yourself to something if you really believed it? You see, both responses are rational just depending on where you are. So it's going to change the way you live. It's going to change the way you go through adversity because you know that as you go through all this adversity, there's hope on the other side. As you go through this maturity in Christ and the Holy Spirit of God bears witness with your spirit, your inner core, that you are a child of God, you know there's hope for you. It changes the way you live. It also, there's a clarity to live a life of courage in this life. It says in these uh, verses in verse 19, this power that's great, that worked in you, raised Jesus from the dead, far above the rule and authority over Satan. He put all things under his feet. Listen, God has conquered everything through the cross. Everything. And so that would give us courage. Romans 8, 18, for I consider the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that has been revealed to us. There's another song about imagination called I Can Only Imagine by Mercy Me. And if you've seen that movie, you know that that song was inspired by this young man's dad who was an alcoholic and estranged from his son. But because of his son's singing and because he eventually went to church and understood the gospel, he gave his heart to Christ, gave up alcohol, and began to write in a journal. And he wrote about heaven over and over and over again. I can only imagine, I can only imagine, I can only imagine. And that's what the writer, John, is asking you to do. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what's going to go on? Which means the pressure is off. You're enlightened to take... Let me just say this about the fruit in Revelation 22. Two. The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering. Now, you can just imagine with me. You, you experience a little bit of that on earth, just a little compared to eternity. But then you get to heaven, and you fall in love with Jesus like you've never been in love with Jesus before. You see him, the Bible says, face to face, and, and the love of God comes into your heart, and it just overflows in your life, and there's no greater impact on your life than love. You love the people around you. There's nothing to separate you. There's no fears of darkness. There's no sin. There's no unforgiveness of of sin in your life and bitterness in your life toward anyone else. There's no no separation at all. You're there and you're loving one another, loving thy neighbors thyself. That's the fruit of the Spirit in your life. What about joy? Don't you want to be joyful? Somebody tell me amen. Amen. Yeah, you want to have joy in your life, not just merely uh, going by your circumstances all your life so you get to heaven. The Bible says in the presence of God is joy forevermore. You'll never experience joy here on earth like we're going to experience it in heaven because we're going to be face to face with Jesus and the circumstances of life are no longer going to control us. What about peace? Listen, I'm not going to be worried about things anymore in heaven. The opposite of of peace is really worry, stress, turmoil in the heart. Why do we worry? We've said we worry because we think We know how things ought to go. We've got it all planned out. God, this is exactly how, oh, it didn't go that way. God, you must not love me. You know, you you must not, you must not be in my corner. I mean, why are you not here? 
And we worry and we worry. What about the next step? What about the next? Because we think we know how things ought to go. If you, you and I could only surrender that will to the Lord and say, God, this didn't work out like I wanted it to, but you know, I, I didn't know, I don't know anything. That's, that's beyond my pay grade. I don't know how things ought to work out. When we get to heaven, we'll be saying, God, I don't know how things are going to work out. And we'll have the courage to live now. Enlightened. It takes the pressure off. Why? Because we live in a dog-eat-dog world, and I don't belong here. This is not my permanent home. It's like the missionary comes home and gets off the plane. He's, he's depressed, and he's thinking, what do I ever accomplish in my life? And his wife is silent. He's silent. She knows what he's thinking. She doesn't know what to say to him. But when he gets off the plane, there's a myriad of people there. And they begin to clap and applaud. And his spirits are lifted. And he's walking down uh, the steps. And these people, the, 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 the clapping gets louder and louder. And tears comes to, come to his eyes. And he says, I just can't believe it. I, I never knew. Right behind him, right behind him, walking, was an ambassador to another country. And they were all clapping for him. And when he realized it, his sadness got even more, more apparent. They got into the car in the taxi, and his wife just patted him on the knee. And she said, it's okay, honey. We're not home yet. And you're not. You're just not home. My wife has a, a Jeep. She's had about six years. She loves the thing. As a matter of fact, my brother-in-law got a Jeep. We had a Jeep uh, meeting, I guess, on vacation. And, man, they were taking off. We were taking off doors and, you know, taking off. We rode down the road with the doors off and all that kind of stuff, stripped down. A lot of fun. I, I, I coined a new phrase. They, they, were, they became Jeep nerds, okay, <laughs> Jeep nerds. Great. It's a lot of fun to drive the thing. But I wouldn't want to live in it. I mean, I'm not trying to say anything about homeless. I'm just saying it's not meant to live in. This world is a great place to be and a great place to make an impact, but it's not the place I'm going to be living for the rest of eternity. So it takes the stress off. So how do you get there? Well, in verses, verse 20, one, or excuse me, 23, in, in the Ephesians it says, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Then he begins to talk about how we are dead in trespasses and sin. And then finally it says, by grace are you saved, verse 8, through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. Jesus said this, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He said, well, that's kind of hard to believe. Because we think about salvation as being several doors. It's like this room. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ten doors to get in here. Not even counting these two back here. That's 12 doors. Well, we've got 12 choices on how to enter into um, the worship center. We kind of feel like religion's that way. There's a lot of doors to enter in. But because of our sin... The Bible says there's no door. You would be like, we'd be in this room with no way out. And in John 10, he said this. Jesus said, I am the door. One door. 
And it's amazing to me, you, you have to take the Bible as a whole, you, you, you certainly can't take a few verses and say, oh, I believe that, and the next verse and say, I don't believe that, okay? Jesus said, my Father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive into myself that where I am, there you may be also. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know. Where are you going? We don't know the way. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's amazing to me as I look in the book of Revelation, he keeps calling Jesus the Lamb. Why of the lamb? And that's a sacrificial term. That's pointing back to the crucifixion of Christ, pointing back to the blood of Jesus and what he did for us on the cross. That's like us taking the Lord's Supper here on earth because we can't be face to face with him in heaven. And we were reminded of the sacrifice over and over and over again that he made. And suddenly we realize we'll never escape the gospel. We'll never be disconnected from the grace of God. Even in heaven, he is known as the one who died for you. How would you like to leave this room today knowing that you're going there if you were to die? You say, well, that's kind of presumption, pastor, kind of presumption. I, was, I had the privilege of going out sharing my faith with um, one of our church members, Chuck, who goes out regularly and, and shares and, and just visits with some people that we have met. And uh, I won't tell you much about the visit, just to say this, I... This person that we came across had a similar background than Chuck. That's Chuck. I said, Chuck, why don't you share your story the way Matt did with you this morning? And he said, well, and I, I'd never heard this. He said, I was sitting in church one day, just coming to church. It was from a different background altogether in my faith. But the pastor preached from the passage, these things have I written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. And he said he kept saying that over and over and over again, kept quoting that verse. And finally, I just said, I'm going to go home and study that. I don't believe that. That's presumption. How can, he, how can you know that? And he said, I begin to study that verse. And it says, we know this because the life is in the Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. And over and over, over again, if we can find that verse, we just put it up, if we can find it. These things have I written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. Boy, that's, that's pretty simple. You can know it. Because either you have the Son, it's not based on works. Either you have the Son, it's not based on what you do. It's based on grace. If either, either you have the Son or you don't. And he said, because of that, he received Christ into his life. Before he was looking at the shadows, and now he found the substance so what about you today? <clears throat> Would you like to trust Christ as your Savior and Lord? Would you like, by an act of faith, come to a place where you call on the name of the Lord and you know that you have eternal life the way the Bible instructs us? You can know it. You can know it. Let's bow our heads right now in the quietness of this moment. As we bow our heads before the Lord, do you know right now that if you were to die, that you'd go to heaven? Most important question in life, isn't it? It just really begins to capsule what life is all about and what eternity is all about.
Because, wow, if you know you're going to heaven, you have the Son, then you, you need to know that, wow, I need to live that way. I need to grow. I need to live the miraculous life. If I don't have the Son, then I, I need to forget about all this if I'm not going to receive him. Because it's all, it's, it's not, my works are not going to do me any good to get to heaven. So if you want to receive Christ and you want to be sure you're going to heaven, I invite you right now to pray this prayer with me silently as I pray aloud. Lord God, I know that your design for me is to have a relationship with you, but my sin has separated me from you. So I ask you to forgive me of my sins based on the cross and what Jesus did for me as he died for my sins. I invite you into my heart, into the inner core of my life. Help my identity be with you. Help my life to be centered around you. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.